Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Back at the start of season three, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of uh, the first uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono uh, solo albums, uh, Plastic Ono Band. And today we're going to look at the uh, golden anniversary of another album that came out in 1970, the debut solo album by Paul McCartney, which we all should know is called simply McCartney, um, which is a good record, Stephen. I like it. Do you like it? I do like it. I do like it. It's hard to separate it from its origins, which is kind of what we're going to talk about today. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, it, it carries a lot of weight. As Paul I see McCartney's. what you did there, carry that weight. Uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, it's going to be one of those episodes. Uh, so. Yes, it carries a lot of weight as Paul McCartney's first solo album. But uh, I, as you say, it, it's it's hard to separate it out from the the circumstances which gave rise to its creation. So we're going to kind of look at the months leading up to the release of the album because uh, it, it seems that there's a a given narrative or a story out there that, you know, Paul was pulling himself up by his bootstraps out of a post-Beatles depression. And and this is his gift to the world to show how happy he was in his new domestic lifestyle. But it's not really true. If you kind of dig down a bit, there's, there's a, it's, it's a, yeah, you know. Yeah, I, 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 no, I absolutely agree with that. I think um, this is the accepted narrative that Paul was in a bit of a depression, that he was drinking heavily, that Linda got him out of this depression by saying, come on, you can make uh, music where there's a life after the Beatles and you can uh, get yourself back in the studio and this will be what's uh, required. And I mean, I, I, I've no doubt that he was shaken by the various events that were happening in 69 around Klein and the various business uh, sort of machinations that were happening. But I think that period of depression has maybe been um, not exaggerated, but sort of lengthened, or maybe Mm. the timeline has been twisted slightly. Um, Even in some of the interviews that Paul gives, there's a a lack of consistency about, um, you know, when were you depressed and how long were you depressed for? Yep. And it's very important that we have all this information <laughs> and we get it in the right order. But um, I, I, I think the album does not necessarily reflect the work of a depressed 
individual. Yes. Well, before we go into talking about some of the details, it might be worth reminding everybody up front that the album comes out mid-April 1970, and it comes out about a month before the Let It Be album. So it comes out before the final Beatles album, and that's going to play an important part later on. Um, But let's rewind back, because the main period that's of interest is from September 69 to about March 1970, which is the period that we shall um, glibly label Schrodinger's Beatles, where the Beatles simultaneously are alive and dead at the same time. And nobody, lest alone the Beatles themselves, is really completely sure of the existence of the band uh, and what their future is. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, that that's crucial, is there is this, this period of uncertainty, this period of, of indecision. And uh, I mean, I think everyone is now aware of, of the meeting which took place on the 8th of September mm. uh, that Mark Lewison uh, last year uh, was, was referencing. And this is the meeting in which John, Paul and George sit down and discuss making the next album. Yes. So they have and, a, so uh, Abbey Road is in the can at the end of August yeah. and it's due out in the shops at the end of September. And this is the 8th of September where they have a meeting and it's recorded because Ringo isn't there, but it's John, George and Paul. Yes, and and they're you know they're actively discussing what the next album, how are we going to do this? And there's this talk about you know you have four songs, I have four songs, you have four songs, Ringo can have two songs if he wants, and there's this actively discussing what's going to happen next. Um, and, and this is this is the way they always work. There's always a project on the go. Um, you know, no sooner have they finished something than one or other of them, usually Paul, is pushing them forward into the next. Project. So, on the face of it, uh, at that meeting, it's nothing. Nothing much has changed. Yeah, even up to present day, Ringo talks about how Paul is always the guy ringing them up to get them into the studio. Mm. That particularly in the latter half of the Beatles' career, and the, the, the we haven't got heard the full tape of this meeting. But it's interesting that it's not a a Paul driven meeting. But something that I think is often forgotten about in the midst of all of this is that. Paul has a new baby at home. He became a dad right at the end of August 69. Yeah. So he's got a 10-day-old baby at home. And anybody out there who's listening who's had to deal with the impact of a 10-day-old baby, your first. I know he was a uh, an adopted father already, but this is like a first newborn uh, baby in his life. He's got daddy baby brain. You know, he's not necessarily... Uh, going to be in the driving seat when 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 he's just got Abbey Road out and he's a new baby at home. I hope your children aren't listening to this. Are you saying are you saying having <laughs> having children disrupt your life in some way? What I'm saying is it broke up my band, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, things were never the same. <laughs> things were never the same again. So, but yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a lot going on here in in, in sort of business wise and in terms of his personal life. But the, I mean, the one thing that they always keep saying, you know is once we got in the studio and we were making music, we can kind of put that, all of that behind us. And you see that time and time again at the, around this period with, you know, Ballad of John and Yoko, where uh, uh, Paul and, uh, and uh, John go in and, and create something, despite the fact that on the face of it, they're, they're having a riot about other things. Um, but then this leads on to, to the meeting a couple of weeks uh, later on the 20th of yes. September. Now, what I would say is in between that, John has been busy because on the 13th of September, he has flown off to Toronto with Yoko and Eric Clapton, etc., and performed at the Toronto Rock and Roll Festival. So mm. John has had his sort of first taste of, if you like, playing live 
with another band or with another group of of musicians mm. and then the following week they're back having a meeting on the 20th of september ostensibly to sign their new distribution agreement with capital and the legend is on the plane to toronto he decides he's done with the beatles and he signs the deal and then announces to the others you know and it seems like a brand new dawn this new deal with uh, capital emi you know new royalty rates and you know gives them control over their compilations and all the rest and it's the one kind of success that klein has managed to deliver to them uh, and then john signs and says i'm done yeah um so it's on the way back he's he's sort of discussing this with with clapton the way back from toronto and he says he's decided to leave um i'm not sure when he actually makes that apparent decline, but certainly it's at this meeting on the 20th in response to Paul again raising this notion of what we should do is get out on the road, you know, play under a pseudonym, play in some small clubs. And John says, I think you're daft, which yes. is which is pretty low key for John. Um, <laughs> I'm leaving the group. I want a divorce. Yes. Now, Tom Doyle in his book, Man on the Run, says, Following this jaw-dropping declaration, the three signed the contract in a bit of a daze, according to McCartney. So they still go ahead. They're still signing the contract. So if the sequence is John says, I want a divorce, mm. but yet they just crack on and sign the contract anyway. Yeah. Um, and Doyle says, you know, everybody will look back on this as the moment when the illness became terminal. And I'm thinking, well, that's the point that I'm not clear on i'm not necessarily prepared to accept that 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 on the 20th as they left the room on the 20th of september they all knew that that was it it was over well we only know that now in retrospect because they didn't yeah. get back together so if there's a parallel universe story where they got back together in the summer of 1970 then that meeting would have just been one of those things the meeting and that statement gains importance because they don't formally get back yeah. together as a four piece again but it's not necessarily clear and that's why we get into this kind of seesaw of are they or aren't they and is it reversible and is it not reversible and the the legend is that you know paul is so upset he rips off to scotland straight away and starts going under the duvet and hitting the bottle but he doesn't go to scotland for a month Yes, so it, it's he doesn't go until the twenty second of October. Yeah, and and they don't stay in Scotland for very long because they're back in Cavendish Avenue in London by Christmas. Yeah, so they're gone for maybe about eight weeks at a push. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he has a, um, as we said, little uh, uh, little baby Mary. So you know he's busy enough and. You know, way back in series one, we covered some of this timeline in our episode about January 1970. So that, that's a kind of a partner episode for, for this one here. But again, the legend sort of states that, you know, Paul was hugely depressed. But we also know from certain interviews he said over the years that he didn't really know they were split up. He didn't know the status. He certainly knew there was a shift and his life was changing and it was different. But, you know, he didn't know for certain that the band were done. No, I mean, I think I think the, the 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 distinction here is, you know, previously Ringo had walked out uh, and come back. George had walked out and come back, uh, dictated terms. I suppose the difference here is this is this is John. This is he's the founder of the band. He's the leader of the band. He's the one now that's saying that's it. It's done. I I, I want a divorce. Um, there's probably more weight given to that. But I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, John has form. 
mm. you know, with the with the crazy announcements, you know, where he convenes a meeting famously to let them all know that he's actually Jesus Christ. <laughs> and they, they kind of indulge him in that. Well, you know, um, do you take John at his word or you think, well, this time next week he'll be doing something else or saying yeah. something else? In the background, work is proceeding on the letter B film. Yes. Um, they're... Uh, prepping the soundtrack. Um, eventually, they will do some more work on that. Everybody's working on solo projects, but and, and they're seen in the public eye, but not as a group. But in the interviews at this time, all four people are speaking about reconvening. Yes. And, you and, know, so, and even so, up so, in uh, Scotland, you know, Paul is recording a bit of footage of himself and Linda together for the something video. So he's yeah. still doing a little bit of, there's still a Beatles job being done and there's a Beatles Christmas record being put together by Kenny Everett in the background. And, you know, it's not a done deal. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, to the outside world, to the public, life is just continuing as before. And I think it's not apparent to the public. And I don't think it's apparent even perhaps to the key players, um, the extent of the fracture in the relationship at this at this stage. So John makes the statement at the end of September. It's another month before Paul goes off to, to uh, Campbellstown in Scotland uh, with uh, Linda and the family. And uh, one of the things that happens in the middle of October is the uh, appearance of the Paul is dead myth. Now, we will probably do an entire episode on Paul is dead at some point because it is a it is a, a fun tale. Um, but by the time that hits a, a global hysteria, Paul is in Scotland and he gets uh, traced to Scotland by reporters. That's it. So, uh, you know, it's the 21st of October. The press office in London has had to put out a statement saying this is a load of old rubbish. The next day, Paul goes to Scotland, and shortly thereafter, he gets doorstepped by um, reporters from Life uh, magazine. Mm. And the story is that uh, they arrive at the door. Paul opens the door, sees who it is. I think it's a reporter that is known to him. And Paul throws a bucket of sort of kitchen slops at the reporter and then hits the reporter. Yeah. Um, to which the reporter then says, well, I think we've outstayed our welcome. <laughs> and they turn around and start tromping back to their uh, to their car that they were their Land Rover. The next thing that happens is Paul comes barreling up the road in his Land Rover to kind of flag them down because suddenly his PR brain has kicked in and he's thinking they have this photograph of me throwing water at them. Blah, blah, blah. So anyway, he uh, says to them, look, terribly sorry, you know, uh, let's have a think about this. If you give me your role of film, I will give you an interview and I will give you a portfolio of Linda's photographs that she's taken us of us up here. Mm. And the deal is done. And he gives uh, an interview. And the interview does, though, allude to the fact that, quote, the Beatle thing is over, end quote, which is a bit he, nebulous. He might just mean the phenomenon of the Beatles is over instead of the band is over. Yes, I mean, given oh, you know, we come on to 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 how the headlines Paul quits the Beatles, how that comes about, and and what triggers that. But this this is an interview that that comes out on the seventh of November, and he actually says, um, "We make good music. We want to go on making good music, but the Beatle thing is over. It has been exploded partly by what we've done and partly by other people. We're individuals, all different. John married Yoko. I married Linda. We didn't marry the same girl. Mm. So 
in that paragraph, he actually says the Beatle thing is over, but that doesn't become a headline. And it, it seems to sort of pass mm. without too much mention. But again, it's one of those things that could just be read in a slightly, you know, depending on what way your prerogative is, you could just sort of yeah. think, well, yeah, the 70s will be a different Beatle thing. You know, that, that yes. could be how you'd read it. Yes, because he says, you know, we still want to make good music, but the Beatle thing is over. And he might be alluding to, you know, the mop tops or the hysteria mm. or the uh, everything that has gone before. Um, so it, what's interesting is, you know, he does start to piece together the the songs and the recordings for the McCartney album. And I think there's a, uh, you know, he, he's in Scotland from the end of uh, October to the middle of December and he's living the family life and he's living in this very Spartan um, cottage, but he's not actually recording in Scotland. There's a, I think people think he was recording there, but he none of the recordings happen in Scotland. No, no. So I mean, presumably he has at least got his acoustic guitar there and he's mm. he's composing yeah. Um, so he he's kind of pulling together little bits and pieces, but there's no recording is actually done. This is this is a very primitive setup. Um, you know, there's a hole in the roof, the the, the mattress on the floor. I mean, I it's, it's running it's, on generators and the electricity. It, yeah, yeah. Now I say what, what the description here is. You know, he's growing a beard. Uh, it's always a sign that he's depressed if he's growing a beard. Apparently, <laughs> but um, is it? What else has um, he had a beard? Well, he's had a beard during the Let It Be sessions. That's oh, I yeah. think where, and if that's his first beard, it's a very good beard to be he, your first he, yeah, first beard. He he does everything well, really. He know? does everything it's well. So the, the, the beard has gone by the time <laughs> the Abbey Road photograph, yeah, cover photograph is being taken. Um, but the beard is. I think he shaves for the photograph uh, for Life magazine. I think I'm right in saying okay. He kind of shit, but uh, the kind of accepted narrative is that you know he's growing his beard, he's drinking a lot, he's not taking a bath apparently, <laughs> uh, maybe I don't know for eight weeks, um, and and but at the same time he's got his guitar and he's noodling away and he's coming yeah. up with uh, so, stuff like the lovely Linda gets written up in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, but then they come back um, to to London shortly before Christmas and. Um, you know, you've got to kind of think then, what what is he doing? You know, he's he's avoiding Abbey Road. He's going to be recording at home. Um, is he trying to recreate the sort of get back vibe? He's kind of alluded to that in some interviews. Mm. You know, I liked it when we just kind of pulled out the guitars and did Maggie May and that sort of thing. Um, but he actually does say in an interview, I didn't think it was going to be an album. It was just me recording for the sake of it. Yeah. Then I started to put a few songs in it. And, and then he says, for me, it has great memories of a happy period. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not unusual that the Beatles individually would have tape machines at home and they'd be fiddling around with them. Yeah. I mean, from the earliest days, they've been sort of recording demos and, and uh, you know, the Isher demos in particular yeah. show that they're, they're quite sophisticated sort of pre-production. Uh, work on that album. The, the difference here, I think, is that McCartney has kind of upgraded the rig that he's got. So it's a Studer tape recorder mm. or tape machine. I mean, this is a thing like the size of a cooker, I think. Yes. Um, There's great pictures of the machine yeah, in the McCartney in, uh, archive collection. Yes. Yes. So he, is, he has had this specifically modified in some ways so that he can plug his guitar, his bass into the back of the machine mm. directly. So it's a modified, so he's, he's kind of upped his game in terms of his home uh, sort of recording facility. Yeah. 
but it does seem to me just to be a continuation of what they're all doing. You know, they're all, Paul in particular, tape loops and things like that going back as far as, you know, 65, 66. Yep. They're all doing this. George records a, a, a good chunk of electronic sound uh, effectively at home. Yeah. And so, yeah, he has this Studer four-track machine, which is a, a very good, high-quality machine. And obviously, four-track means he can record four separate instruments. But, you know, a, a, a tape machine is really only part of a recording setup. A recording setup should have a mixing desk, and the mixing yeah. desk should have the right inputs and outputs for whatever instrument you're recording and whatever specific mics would be inputted to the desk. And all he has is the tape machine. So instead of the tape machine being fed inputs via a mixing desk, he's just plugging straight into the tape machine and recording these sounds raw. So yeah. instead of a you know twisting a knob on a mixing desk to to you know, change the echo or the delay. He's just recording a drum in a different room with the mic in a different place until he gets a, a sound he likes. And he's very sort of proud of this kind of, um, you know, what would you say, Heath Robinson kind of way of, of yes, recording. He's, yes, he, he does mention this. He talks about a studer, one mic and some nerve, oh. you know. So he's, and you know, he says himself, there were no monitors, there were no VU meters to tell him whether things were yeah. being distorted or not. He had no way of judging that until he listened back to it. If it was too loud, he'd wipe it, move the mics a little bit further away, try it again. Um, so as you say, it is this kind of Heath Robinson setup. Yeah. It, it's a sophisticated home demo setup. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it is a time when home studios are coming into their own. I know uh, Pete Townsend is probably the king of the home studio at this point. He's got some extraordinary demos yeah. and setups, yeah. uh, if anyone wants to listen to those things. Uh, so in the past, when we've talked about albums, we might, we've kind of looked at the order of the songs on the album, but it's more instructive with the McCartney album to look at the order of the songs as they were recorded, as opposed to how they appear on the album. Because it's kind of safe to say that, you know, when he's sitting at home with the four track machine, he's recording stuff that is kind of whimsical or, you know, not steadily song structured or they're kind of loose limbed, you know, experiments, really. Yes. I mean, he by his own admission, he starts off testing the equipment. So he's recording bits and pieces just to see what he's got, how he can work with this machine. Hmm. Um and I do think it is the case that, uh, that you know, Linda is saying to him, you know, you're Paul McCartney. You can do these things. You're, you, you're a musician. You've got to get back to that. This is what you, you do best. And he, he does kind of throw himself into this. But I, I think, as you say, the, the sequence of the recording, uh, the recordings as he, as he puts them down is very instructive. And my feeling is you need to look at this from the point of view is, are these actually home demos of, of songs that he thinks he will be able to bring into the studio for the Beatles or for himself later and make into more sophisticated arrangements? Mm. Are these just things to test the equipment? Um, he, he doesn't seem, by his own admission, to have had the idea that this will be an album. So he doesn't certainly doesn't start off from day one thinking, I'm recording my first solo album. No. Um, it's much more casual than that and much less focused than that. So the first thing he apparently puts down is The Lovely Linda, which is the track that does end up opening the album. And it's um, one of these things that he apparently puts down to just uh, check my machine, so to speak, yep. where he's, he's, he's trying to see if everything works. And it's a song that he's brought down from Scotland with him. And I think he says in the press release, I'm just going to pull it up here, that uh, this is a, a trailer to a full song which will be recorded in the future. And that never happens. 
It never, no, it it it, uh, it never happens. And um, he he said this is effectively a diary song. Mm. He said, you know, Linda wandered around with flowers in her hair. So he just sort of in that way, you know, music just pours out of Paul McCartney. Mm. Um, and um, you know, so he puts this down, Linda. Uh, in an interview, and I'd never heard this before. She said, oh, you can hear the sound of a gate creaking or a door opening. Right. And I thought, no, you can't. And <laughs> I was listening to it today, and I thought, yes, you can. You can actually hear a squeaking door in it. <laughs> it's only in the um, remastered archive edition, obviously. Yeah, that uh, where they, they turned they, that up. They've but, tweaked um, up the gate. You know, but this, this is a song that, uh, you know, it, it turns up on wingspan. Mm. Um, it turns up, there's a, there's a, uh, an orchestral arrangement turns up on working classical, and obviously uh, the, the connection with Linda is very powerful, and it, it it has a very strong personal meaning to him. But this is a this is a kind of what will become typical of McCartney: these kind of little throwaway songs that you get. You know, you get them on Ram, you get them on Wildlife. You get them on the uh, White Album as well. Though, the White you know? Album, Back to the Egg, London mm. Town. You know, these are all over the place in his, his his solo career. But again, it's, you know, and you'll see this with McCartney, it's the intent and the placement. I mean, this is a, it's it's one thing to do these little um, throwaway pieces that he does, but to open your debut post-Beatles solo album with a, whatever, a 45-second song yeah. about the lovely Linda, that's... Uh, a very different type of statement of intent. It is. And I think, again, you've got to be very conscious of the John and Yoko mm. uh, relationship in the background. And, you know, Paul is bringing Linda center stage yeah. into his, uh, you know, there's a very clear declaration of his love for Linda Eastman. And and he's not done this before. Mm. You know, there isn't a, a Jane isn't name checked in a song. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you know, any of the other sort of serious or potentially serious women in his life relationships, they're not name checked. Well, I, I think there's a very, you know, I, th I think it's often overlooked that there is a, a, there is a really significant change in his songwriting in yeah. 1970 when he goes solo. And he, 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 you know, people sort of, complain and say, oh, he's not a personal songwriter or he's not, you know, he doesn't really give himself away. I'm thinking, no, he actually is. He's shifting away from songs about meter maids and Rocky Raccoon and saloons and all the rest into very clear songs about, you know, his life and how he's feeling and where he's at. And, you know, they're, sometimes they're wrapped up in a bit of metaphor. But, you know, the songs, the, 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 the thing I've said many times before, is like it's the difference between a song like Yesterday and a song like Tomorrow, where one is, you know, a, a song that's cultivated to be a song almost, to tell yeah. a story. And the other one is literally, you know, a very personal reflection on, 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 on how he feels about his life. So I think his songwriting is actually changing. He mightn't have noticed that himself, but he's, you know, in a position to, you know, write a write a song as good as something. How about that, Stephen? You know, he's trying to, you know, there's he's he's moving away from these kind of caricature songs into more yeah, open this, personal this, songs. That that song is good as something. This isn't it. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm thinking of a song that we're going to get to in a little while. Um, the second song, okay. oh, but the, oh, the song that would can, be something can, is next. <laughs> I can, I can, I can hardly wait. Yes, yes, um, yes. Speaking of something that would be something is the next song that he attempts and records, and again another kind of, you know, laid back, easy groove written in Scotland. It, we think 
I love this song. Yeah. I really do like this song. It's 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 not much of a song, but it's a great performance is the way I, I, I kind of look at it. Um, um, George liked this one. Yeah. Uh, this is this is a song that George Harrison singled out. Um, and you can see that it's it's just got a nice feel to it. You know, it's not lyrically, there's nothing there's nothing to it. Mm. Um, I like the kind of percussion that he does, the kind of little you oh, know, yeah, the mouth <laughs> thing, yeah. Yeah, little uh, mouth percussion. Um this is a song that I thought he wrote in Scotland. Mark Lewis and says in Chronicles that it was rehearsed back in January 1969 by the Beatles, mm. um, but no tape exists. But it's largely just a riff. Yeah. Um, so that that could be. Um, again, this is another one of those songs that I think. Well, you could that could really have been developed into something spectacular mm. um, with a band arrangement. But then he did do that on Unplugged. Yeah, and it doesn't make and it any better, doesn't, really. Doesn't really kind of do anything with it. Yeah, you know. But but it is, you know, it, it gives you an idea when you listen to that would be something about this is all him. Every note you hear on on this is him. Yeah, and so uh, you know, a song like that, you know, um, that would be something, you know. You know, he's, he's got good reverb on the guitar. He's got, you know, reel and mouth percussion. He's, you know, he's got a good sense of his vocal. There's very few times on the album when you kind of think that actually, you know, you, you think you kind of forget that it's all just him for an awful lot. Yeah, it's, a, it's quite a kind of sophisticated rhythm to it. Mm. It's, it's very well put together. Um, and uh, he, he, he sounds like he's having a ball. Yeah. You know, he sounds like he's having fun. Yeah. Um, and then the next thing he records is Valentine Day, um, which is another kind of home recording that he just makes up as he goes along. So it seems the first things he records are the first three tracks on the album, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. He's just he's just testing the equipment. He's getting a sound. He's uh, seeing what he can do with this. And uh, yeah, he says that he said there's another two songs here he just ad libs on the spot and he can he he's saying you know he put lays down a drum track and then he he starts to kind of build on that and this is something that you you've remarked on before is that you know McCartney tends to come into the studio with an idea in his head of what the song will sound like he he works in terms of the finished record he mm. can hear all of this mm. it's difficult to imagine lennon yeah sitting down and being able to do this where he's right well if i start with a drum track and then i can build up and i can layer the guitar and i can layer the bass you know paul thinks in terms of these fully worked out arrangements lennon it's it, it's much more i think he's relying on he may not have liked it particularly but he's relying on paul to bring an element of that to his songs he's yeah. relying on george martin he's relying on george he's relying on ringo yeah well, the other kind of songs he improvises at this time are Ooh You and Mama Miss America, which was called Rock and Roll Springtime. But in the middle of all of this, he records uh, two songs that are essentially Beatle scraps, Beatle leftovers, yeah. um, which are Teddy Boy and Junk and Sing Along Junk. So uh, these are both songs that start way back in India, don't they? Aren't they? They're both India. Yeah, uh, he, he, he began writing these uh, in, in, in 1968. And, uh, you know, uh, this is something that confuses me, or I, I, I don't understand why these songs have been sitting mm. since 1968 you know they, they you've got the Isher demos uh where they're they're kind of working these out they're tried out in january 69 so they don't 
make the cut for the White Album. They don't make the cut for, um, you know, the Get Back sessions. They don't make the cut for Abbey Road. And now he's kind of uh, taking another pass at it. So I don't know if you've heard the the, the Get Back version of, of Teddy Boy. And is, was this the Anthology 3 version? Well, it is and it isn't. There's, okay. there's on, the, on the 24th of January, which is there in the Apple basement yeah. studio by the stage, there's a full version by Paul on acoustic guitar. And you can hear Glenn Johns at one point kind of getting him to McCartney to restart it so that he can get a multi-track um, recording. This goes on forever. Right. And I mean, I, I don't know how many chords there are hmm. in Teddy, but it sounds as if he's just busking the same three or four chords yeah. over and over and over and over again. And this is where John starts his square dancing. Yes. Take your partner's uh, dozy thing. And that square dancing comment comes to, turns up on the anthology version. But that, uh, uh, there's another version on the 28th mm-hmm. where John does that again. Oh. And, 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 in the nature of anthology, they splice the versions together to create a kind of Frankenstein um, version. I have to say, I absolutely hate that song. <laughs> I, <laughs> in, I, in all of its many incarnations, I, I just don't really like Teddy Boy. I think it's thin soup. It's, and yeah, it's insufferably twee. Twee. I know you've you've no uh, truck for the twee, Stephen. No, but no. I I remember when I first uh, got the McCartney album, I thought, oh, there's this song Teddy Boy that the Beatles recorded but didn't release. I can't wait yeah. to hear it. This is going to blow my mind. My mind was not blown when I first yeah. heard Teddy Boy. Um, junk, however, everyone loves junk, don't they? Junk is absolutely top notch. I think junk <laughs> is 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 probably you know so there's some days when it's my favorite song on this album but certainly it's 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 one of the top two songs on this album yeah um and it's always been great the isha demo version is great um this is great and again it was passed over for three albums why was this not on abbey road yes well where would where would you put it uh well you could ditch maxwell silverhammer why, why would you do that well, you could ditch Maxwell's Silver Hammer. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. it would it would fit perfectly on the White Album. Yes, it would. You know, the finish to the finished version sounds if it just dropped off the back of the White Album. Yeah, no, it does um, have a White Album vibe. Absolutely. So, it, it, you know, is it just there was, but you know, they had too much material for the White Album. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, maybe, but but why was it not then repurposed for? Uh, Abbey Road. Well, I wonder, you know, what you kind of notice with the, you know, the Get Back, Let It Be sessions is they're just kind of churning through whatever fragments they have. They've so much time to kill that certain stuff kind of gets put into the the brain washing machine and gets tumbled around. And it's it's obviously just in his mind and it just needs to be put down. It needs to be put down so it can be put away. Yeah, there's a very brief pass at this during the get back sessions on the 9th of January. And it's really just John and Paul trying to remember the tune. And they do a bit of kind of Michelle style caught French mm. um, singing. Um, the the first take that McCartney does for on, on this home equipment is the instrumental version. Right. And apart from adding some uh, kind of string effects on a Mellotron, I think, um, Later on, that's the first take yeah. is is the instrumental version. But it's just it's a gorgeous tune. Uh, the lyrics, I think, are excellent. Yeah, you know, just very impressionistic. And I think it would have been a great 
uh, uh, addition to Abbey Road. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so we kind of get to the end of 1969 and here's where, you know, one of those curious things happened. So as I, as I mentioned before, we did an episode about that Beatles session uh, at the start of January 1970 where um, Paul... George and Ringo go into Abbey Road for two days and they record I Me Mine from scratch and they revisit and tinker with the Let It Be um, single that's due out. So in the midst of all of this, we have what is essentially a Beatles recording session. John is in Denmark, so he doesn't come back for that. But, you know, this feeds into this thing of Schrodinger's Beatles between September and March, where they are, where they not done and dusted and they're not they're booked in as the Beatles and they record Beatles songs together so they're not done they're not done and uh, again they seem to be having a good time yes and and this is a general a genuine musical collaboration between Paul and George so the I I me me mine refrain mm. is Paul Paul writes that all right comes okay. up with that as part of the arrangement so Paul brings that to the table. I mean, this is this is almost uh, kind of McCartney Harrison, or sorry, Harrison McCartney uh, <laughs> co-write. Yeah, um, you know, certainly in the arrangements. So Paul, that, at, even at this stage, and and we're, we're supposedly the traditional narrative is the Beatles have split up. John has called a halt on the twentieth of September. Uh, Paul is. Uh, you know, wallowing in the sly of despond and, and can't raise himself. And here they are for two days, the three of them, just like old times in the studio, arranging an, uh, a George Harrison track. And then uh, the next day they revisit um, Let, Let It Be. It be. So it's this, it's this notion that once they get in the studio and put, they, they seem to be able to leave everything behind. And there is a, a bit of studio jamming uh, between the three of them when we're there. And this has come out now. It, it was new to me. I heard it online a few weeks ago. And yeah. I, some people tell me online, no, 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 that was on the Yellow Dog bootleg back in blah, blah, yes, blah. Yes. I, I, I felt so ashamed that I hadn't <laughs> heard it before. Um, call myself a podcaster. But the uh, there's it, it's, it, it's a pretty straightforward kind of groove. But there is one little bit on it where... There's a little bit of maybe I'm amazed where Paul goes dun, 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 yes. on the piano. And yes, there's can... a little run on the piano that you think, okay, that's yeah. interesting. But, you know, they're, they're having fun. Yeah, they're, they're uh, doing I mean, their job. Yeah, I mean, there is one of the engineers. It's not, not um, uh, it wasn't Glenn Johns or, or Jeff Emmerich. I can't remember the name. One of them said, as long as you, you, you didn't have all four of them in the room, <laughs> Yeah. There was no, there was no tension. Any combination of three was fine, but it was when they were all in the room together that's when the tension, um, uh, you, you know, arises. Yeah. So so, but but certainly, Paul is is giving his all here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's January 1970 and, and um, Paul, George and Ringo then go off into the horizon, uh, and the Let It Be single gets uh, teed up. What's interesting then is that we're not really sure, but there's this. It's not really until February that Paul starts going to the professional studios, Morgan uh, Studios, and Abbey Road, uh, where there's a sea change in his recording. And yeah, I know you have a theory about the thing that maybe turns Paul in one direction from recording some jams at home into booking himself into a studio under a pseudonym to record yeah, proper songs. Yeah, proper songs. So, so yes, yeah, so the first thing that happens is um, uh, beginning of February, the 12th of February, hmm. 
Paul takes these tapes to Morgan Studios, which is in Willesden. He's booked in under a pseudonym, Billy Martin. So this is not something that there's, you know, he's trying to keep this off uh, the radar. Mm. Now, what he does here, first of all, is he just transfers his home four-track recordings onto eight-track. Yeah. And that that's just, you know, to allow for further overdubbing. He adds some Mellotron to the sing-along junk. Um, uh, he does a vocal for... OU, mm -hmm. and then he tapes another couple of uh, uh, tracks. These are probably your your favorite. Um, <laughs> Which tracks. ones? Now we're talking uh, hot um, as sun. We're talking hot as sun. Well, now you, you want to talk a little bit about hot as sun. Hot as sun. Well, first of all, uh, on my original um, CD thirty odd years ago, I thought this track was called Hot as Sunglasses. So did I. <laughs> so <laughs> there's no hyphen. There was no hyphen. There was no, no. Uh, slash between the two. It was yeah, Hot as Sunglasses. Hot as Sunglasses. Which I thought, oh, okay, it's called Hot as Sunglasses. Um, but no, it's called Hot as Sun. And uh, you know. I thought I loved this song, but credit where it's due, the definitive version is by Elaine Page. Yes, you've recently come to this. <laughs> I've come to, I've woken <laughs> up from my slumber. I took the right coloured pill, whatever that was. And um, my God, it's, uh, well, we should explain. We should explain. We should explain. So Hottest Sun is a sort of dinky little instrumental um, that, that dates from the late 50s. And um, Paul wrote it. It was something that Quarrymen uh, uh, recorded. But again, um, that's this kind of churn of all the fragments, like li literally shaking, yes. not the dregs, but just getting anything out that needs to be gotten out, you know? Yes. So so actually, and the Beatles attempt it or have a run through mm. um, on the 24th of January during the Let It Be sessions, this suddenly bubbles up to the surface. So they're, they're, they're at this stage, they're kind of, you know, they're running through things like Cat's Walk. They've got one after 909 yeah. and suddenly Hot as Sun. So these, these things that they used to do as teenagers um, and it's part of that trip back. So, um, you, you know, people describe this as Polynesian influenced instrumental and, yeah, uh, the Beatles. Well, the Beatles version. Paul starts by going, "Welcome to the South Sea Islands, where the sound of a wave landing in the sand brings joy to the air." <laughs> I'm not going to do an impression. Um, no, don't. Um, it's got, so, it's got so a bit of "You know my name." Look up the number. It, it's a little bit, little bit like that. Um, mm. Wings played it. He he drags that this out from the from from the past, and he does almost a, a slightly reggae. Inflection yeah, to it on, on that final 79 yeah. tour. But as you say, the <laughs> definitive uh, Jason Carty's favorite version of this song, you heard it here first, uh, is by Elaine Page. So at some point in the early 80s, 81, 82, Tim Rice, is he yeah. Sir, Tim, Sir Tim Rice now? Lord, um, I don't know. Lord Baron. Tim Rice. Uh, he writes a set of lyrics. Yes. And they're and terrible. Was, they are pretty... Are you going to recite them? No, no it just goes hot as sun. He was hot as sun. Then the next verse is cold as ice. I was cold as ice. And it's it's very wordy in a sort of musical way. It's not, uh, I mean, if you were Elaine well, Page's yeah, producer in the studio and you're like, oh, okay, we've got, a, we've got a, a tape coming in from Paul McCartney and Tim Rice. You'd be like, man, I can't wait to be number one for a year. And then yeah. you hear this and you're like, oh, well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not so great. It is very bad, and there, there, there is a particularly excruciating clip of her singing it live or miming to it on 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 YouTube that yes. people can go on. We will post that. Uh, the, sleeve, the sleeve notes claim that Paul McCartney wrote the song specifically for her, so she seems to have been completely unaware. But he didn't. There was uh, another version, wasn't there? 
There was an earlier version um, by uh, Nusha Fox. That, that was incredible. I didn't know that until um, your research uh, told uh, me. Uh, you, but you know the band Fox? Yes. Sus a single bed. Sus a single bed. And the the they wrote the theme tune for Kent the Kenny Everett They did. They she did. I like electro people. That theme tune. I thought you would have known that. Uh, so Kenny Everett keeps weaving his way in and out of all our episodes. But, uh, you know, Nusha Fox, another top pop fact. Do you know who her son is? No. Ben Goldacre. You know, the science writer and yes. the science. Uh, yes. He's yes. a doctor and he does all these popular science books. That's her son. Nusha Fox can is we, his mom. Can we, can, can we get him on the podcast to talk about uh, I don't know. Nusha Fox? And... We get all a bit uh, techie, I guess, you know. And can I, from an Irish connection, Herbie Armstrong was the guitar player <laughs> in, in Fox. Welcome to the uh, Nusha always... Fox podcast. Yes. <laughs> Herbie Armstrong was Van Morrison's guitarist from 1978 to 1982. Really? So I have seen... In charge of the uh, harmonicas as well, maybe. In Who charge knows? of the harmonicas, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no We're no, not no, going no, there. No, no, no. Um, yes, Hot as Sun. Other, other podcasts are available <laughs> if you want to learn about Van Morrison's harmonicas. Um, Hot as Sun is very sweet when it appears on the album. Again, it's a beautifully yes. recorded thing and it's nice and clear. It rings like a bell. It's lovely. Um, and it's, because it's, it's recorded all you need. You don't it's need. all you need. You don't need a Leon page. Um, but yes, but it's recorded in a studio. So yeah. it has that kind of slightly uh, more professional yeah. machine uh, um, to it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And he also records in Morgan, uh, Crean Acrore. I've always worried yes, am I saying um, that right? I'm never entirely sure how you pronounce that. Crean Acrore, Crean Acrore. Um, what I can tell you is this is, uh, <laughs> this is my... This is apparently a track on the album. My album always seems to stop one track earlier. Yes, mine too. <laughs> mine too. I, I think I can honestly say I've only ever listened to this all the way through, either in the past by accident or... Uh, asleep today, in your chair asleep in my chair or <laughs> today in the car I put the album on and I thought in the interest of uh, research uh, and I listened to the whole thing yeah. I'll not be doing that again I mean you know if if you like Loop First Indian on the Moon you're going to really oh. dig uh, Karina Crory so, uh, so th- th- this is I'm going to read this McCartney's <laughs> attempt to sonically describe a hunt by the Karina Crory tribes people of the Brazilian Amazon after he had watched a documentary on their way of life do you know what I blame dynamite weed dynamite weed I think I think dynamite weed 
probably does factor <laughs> into the equation here. So, for I mean, this is a, just a terrible song, and it's not it's not even a song. A song. And it, it's 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 a sound it's collage. A, you don't understand. It's a sound You're collage. It's not, this. Could I tell you, I wasn't, I wouldn't be prepared to accept this from Pink Floyd, and I'm not prepared <laughs> uh, to accept it from Paul Paul McCartney. It's the it's the fact that it's it it sounds so terrible. It mm. sounds like the drumming sounds like somebody drumming on a desk with their fingers. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's dreadful. And it's recorded in Morgan Studios. Um, and it's a terrible sound. Where, 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 do you, where do you stand on this song? I'm just not sure whether you... Yeah, I, I need to get off the fence on this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, um, and there's, there's, there's a kind of a drum solo, and then there's a lot of panting. Yeah, yeah, listen. Which is obviously the tribes people have chased some poor animal through there. Yeah, these are vegetarians. I mean, uh, not yet. They're not veg. They're on the road to vegetarianism. Would he at this release stage. such a single today? I don't know. You'd have the bloody well, brigade out saying it's appropriation and all that. It would be cultural appropriation. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but there's kind of like panting and it just makes it sound like he's out of breath after doing a not very good drum solo. It, it, <laughs> uh, there's no sense. True. There is no way that you would know what the inspiration is despite the fact that they went to harrods really and they went to harrods the where you can buy anything yeah. and bought a bow and arrow oh. and they set microphones up in the studio and then uh they fired arrows into a target and you can't hear that no you can't hear that i think we can we, we can all concur that dynamite weed dynamite weed played a part they might as well just have called the song dynamite <laughs> weed but the big question we've been yeah, threading through all of this is, you know, he's recording these kind of low, you know, kind of, you know, lo-fi funky yeah. songs. When yeah. does he get serious and when does it become an album? And can I give you, can I give you my theory now? Well, you drop your theory because what is happening in the background? When, when Paul goes into the studio on the 12th of February, what's happening on the telly? John and Yoko are appearing on top of the pops with instant karma. And that's um, a big song. That's a big song. And it's a big hit. Yes. And it's and there's direct- no messing that it's not an experiment. It's no. not a, you know, this is Beatles this quality is- material. Exactly. It's not give peace a chance, which is just, you know, uh, the kind of sloganeering. It's yeah. not um, cold turkey, which is a kind of completely out there. Uh, you know, it's a, clearly a John Lennon song. Instant Karma is a big commercial pop song. Yes. And it's getting the push and it's 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 a song that you know nobody knew about it happens very quickly that is it, the legend it, of instant karma recorded yeah. at the end of january put out at the start of february a week later he's on top of the pops and you know paul must hear this and it yes your theory and i think it's right is that this this causes a gear shift in the type of work paul is doing and Ab- it seems to coalesce in actually this is now an album Yes, absolutely. I th- I think up to this point, um, Paul's just been um, you know recording home demos and doing doing a slightly more sophisticated version of what they've all been doing before. Mm. Suddenly, uh, you know, two virgins, Life of the Lions, the Wedding Album. These are not thre- these are not in competition with the Beatles in the same way that Wonderwall, Electronic Sound. These these are not competing on the same playing mm. field. But suddenly, John is on top of the pop. So presumably Paul is not aware of this song until it actually hits the streets yeah. on the 6th of February. The next week, while he's in doing Hottest Sun, Karina Crow, again, odd little mm. experimental things, 
John suddenly appears on top of the Pops. He appears on top of the Pops again the next week on the 19th of February. And this is a huge hit single. It's competing with Let It Be. Yep. It's the first solo single uh, by, by any member of the band to sell a million copies. Melody Maker are saying, how, you know, John Lennon is singing better than ever. Uh, Cashbox, you, you know, are raving about it. So this is suddenly a bona fide commercial smash. Uh, three days later, yeah. three days after that second Top of the Pops appearance on the 21st of, of, of February 1970, Paul is in Abbey Road. And he means business. And he means business. And I think that this is the point at which Paul suddenly starts to realize. I'm on my uh, own. Let's go. Uh, uh, this is real. This yeah. is John is leaving. John is moving on. I, I don't think he's quite got to the point where it's absolutely final, but he can suddenly say that John is competing with the Beatles in the commercial it, marketplace. Yeah, it, it's definitely the next step or the next gear change from yeah. September to, to, to the eventual split. It's the next step along is, is, is yeah, Paul's I, change here. I think this is the point at which, uh, you, you know, there's this thing about Schrodinger's Beatles, are they, aren't they? This is where I suddenly think Paul thinks, uh-oh, this is this is the real deal. This could be it. This isn't Ringo walking out and coming back. This isn't George walking out. John has moved from the kind of avant-garde, yeah. uh, you know, uh, sideline, right dead centre is is in competition with, with the Beatles. And it's not just that. He also sees... You know, there's a there's a message that John doesn't need him. John can yeah. deliver big pop without him. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so Paul goes into Abbey Road, and first thing he puts down is "Every Night." Yes. Now, so every proper, night has this a proper song, a proper, a proper song. song, and a highlight of the record. And yeah, uh, you know, there's this. I think every night sort of adds to the legend of Paul was depressed and having a drink up in Scotland and didn't know what to do. And yeah. that's not true because it's an old song that even the Beatles had tried to record in January 69. That's that's right. And and it's that opening lyric, you know, every, every night I want to go out, get out of my head. Uh, and uh, that is taken to allude to the fact that he just wants to go out. He wants to get drunk. Yeah. You know, he, he uh, this is the depression. And But that lyric... Those opening lines has have, those have been kicking around, um, uh, you know, since late '68. So they 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 do a version of the Beatles do a version of it at Apple. Yeah. Um. Uh, on Wednesday, the twenty second of January, the first two lines are there. It's very slow, Paul vamping away on a piano. Very difficult to listen to. There's a lot of feedback, setting up mics. Um. They do it two days later on the twenty fourth. John is playing some absolutely awful. Um slide guitar mm. the lyrics aren't finished but he kind of segues into something else where he starts singing pillow for your head over and over again and <laughs> again you think well is is that you never give me your pillow uh, you never yeah, say, yeah. Uh, or is that um uh, you know put my head on the pillow and every night so he's kind of working on something and this is the point where they do hottest sun they do cat's walk they do. I lost my little girl. Yeah, they're they're having a great time, but it's clearly unfinished, and he's still retooling it. Um, but he puts it down at Abbey Road, and it's a it's a key moment in the album. And then the next thing he puts down is the 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 cornerstone, and what kind of puts sets the album apart, and that's maybe I'm amazed. Yes, 
Yes. Um, I mean, this, this, is, this is really the big number. This mm-hmm. is really the big number. And it's the big Beatles quality number. It's, it's, it's the, you know, that is a song that could have been Abbey Roaded. It is. This is, I mean, you know, this is a great performance on, on the McCartney album. And what I would say is, you know, uh, to have, have Paul playing every single instrument, th- there's a great kind of band sound. It doesn't sound like it's one yep. person yep. overdubbing everything. Is But you can't help but wonder, what would that be like if Ringo was on drums? What would that be like if George was on guitar? What would that be like if John was in Denmark and not interfering with what <laughs> everybody else was doing? <laughs> you, you know, if and and it is that he should have wheeled that out on the third of January, and as you said earlier, we get this little kind of snippet of of the piano run appears as part of a jam, and you think, mm. oh, Paul, why didn't you just wheel this out and get George and Ringo? to work on that. But I mean, your notion that, you know, this is a direct response to instant karma does make sense. It's like, okay, you've got instant karma. I've got this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think you know, we'll talk about the release of the album in a second, but you know, it, 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 it's a pity that it didn't get a standalone pre-album release. I, I think so. Or, or, you know, perhaps that the album, is shelved or put back yeah, uh, and, and there's just, you know, in the same way that this is, you know, Instant Karma is John's third solo single. Well, yeah. Paul could have, could have, could have put out a solo yeah. single. Um, yeah, it's, it's odd. We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. Cause there's one or two more things that still to be put down. They put down glasses, which is just uh, in Abbey Road Studio 3. That's a good use of Abbey Road Studio time to play some wine yeah. glasses. So you, um, you, he, he sets out these glasses and again, the, the, I, I quite like that. I quite like the, it? you know, it's a kind of, again, it's a kind of Pink Floydy. Well, you know, they did the exact same thing, Pink Floyd, five years yeah. later. They did household yeah. objects. Household and you can, objects, yeah. You can hear those glasses at the start of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And I think I think I think it is it is kind of interesting, you know. Even though he's, as you say, he's in Abbey Road, he's he's still doing these slightly off the wall mm. things. And then on the album, he he, for some reason, and I never knew what this was. Listening to it's not listed. Suicide. Yes, the little snippet of this song, Suicide. Yeah, and that is that is weird. Should we talk about Suicide now? That song. It's a weird. It it. it it's been around since he but was a teenager. One, it's another one of these songs from ten or fifteen years earlier that's been shaken yeah. out of his mental cobwebs, and it's it's yeah. it's uh, it appears eventually uh, officially on the um, reissue the the um, archive edition of um, uh, McCartney when that comes out in two thousand and eleven. I, I I don't like it. No, at all. It's really. it's it's kind of one of those examples of you know Paul. Uh, sort of pastiche, you know, I can write anything. You want a mm. Polynesian instrumental, here's one. You want a kind of uh, jazzy song that could be a big band arrangement with brass, you know, here's Suicide. And But he uh, normally nails that kind of stuff, like a song like Honey Pie kind of nails the pastiche. Whereas yeah. Suicide, I think, actually, no, a song in this style would never be called Suicide. You haven't nailed it at all. No, but he doesn't He doesn't leave it. I mean, this this song crops up everywhere yeah it does so he's got this he's you know he's he's first knocked out a version of this when he's a teenager he uh does this demo version it appears on one hand clapping in 1974 it's on the piano tape in 1975 that we talked about on a previous uh and then finally the full version which is a bit ho-hum uh you know turns up on the box set and in the meantime he's offered it to frank sinatra yeah and Sinatra was uh, said, no, 
Thanks very much. No, thanks, Paul. That's that's fine. That's um, fine. And then the last song that's recorded is "Man We Was Lonely," another kind of proper song with a, another, a great bit of Linda on it as well. Great. This is this is the kind of proto Wings vocal yes. sound coming, and again, I, it it seems to me that this is a song that could very easily just slot into Ram. Well, I was reading a thing recently about songs on albums that tell you what the next album is going to sound like yeah. on, on a certain message board. And I think you're right. Man We Was Lonely is like the little flag that's dropped to say, this is a, a little road. This is what's going, going next. next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even that kind of American country twang. Yeah, it's like it. Country Dreamer or it's like uh, that. Yeah. Um, but what I, would, what I would say is this is the song. And I think this is probably the only song that really alludes to what he has been going through. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it does what it says in the title, man, we was lonely and we were hard pressed to find a smile. I mean, I think that is a piece of autobiographical yeah. writing. And there's a line in the minute, in the middle of it where he says, beautiful little kind of bridge, which is and again, beautiful vocal from Paul singing songs that I thought were mine alone. Right. And it's hard to see that as anything other than a reference to the um, uh, the sort of business well, things that are going on with Northern songs and, and the split with John. And, and So this gets us to the end of February 1970. And it is ridiculous the amount of traffic in their lives in March, April and May 1970. Yeah. So the album is in the can at the end of uh, February, as we said. On the 6th of March, the Let It Be single comes out. So if you're, you know, Joe Public, you think, oh, that's a great new Beatles yeah. song that comes out. Um, Paul does kind of tinker away on uh, mixes and all the rest. And oddly enough, he, he, I think he's still working on it into until uh, about the 23rd of March. I think there's still some mixing yeah. and editing going on. And just to give you an idea of how fast everything happens, the 23rd of March, which is his last day when he actually delivers the final master, is the first day that Phil Spector works in the studio on the Let It Be album. On the tips, yeah. So, so you know, Let It Be is... Uh, it's 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 shocking how fast Let It Be goes from Phil Spector's first day to being in the shops, that whole album. Um, well, this is this is this is obviously at least one or possibly half a dozen episodes is about Phil Spector on on Let It Be. But mm. um, this is one of the criticisms of Spector is that he just grabbed the nearest mix or the nearest version of a song and picked it up and ran with it. That he didn't actually spend the time yeah. sifting through. But Let It Be was not anticipated. You know that they they didn't think that Spector was going to be finished yeah. as quickly as he ended up finishing it. Um, and that comes back to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, Spectre spends from the 23rd of March to the 2nd of April working on Let It Be. And Let It Be, the album is in the shops a little over a month later on the 8th of May. That's how fast this happens. But Paul, you know, by the end of February, realises he has an album, has it ready to go and mastered uh, by the third week in March. And he wants it out fast. And this is where Schrodinger's Beatles kind of comes to a head. Because if there's going to be uh, some kind of denouement or split, it happens around Paul's decision of when the album should come out. I think so. I think so. So suddenly the, the Apple finds that Spectre's finished. Mm. And they can get this. They get this out, and everything starts moving. And initially, Klein has said, uh, "You know, when the McCartney album, 
will not bring that out. And he's kind of rejigging the schedule. Paul has talked in interviews about how he went to George mm. and said, I want my album out on this particular date in April. And he got an assurance from George as a director of Apple that that would happen. Um, and that is where he feels it sits, that it's mm -hmm. all ready to go. Now, what I would say at this point is Paul sort of since the back end of 1969 has effectively been boycotting Apple. So yeah. since Klein's arrival, he just in, in a kind of passive aggressive way has absented himself, you know, and part of going off to Scotland, I think had a lot to do with that. You know, if you're, if you're away and yeah, you're he not physical distance, he wants that physical distance. But what happens in the meantime, in his absence, is that decisions have to be made. Uh, business decisions have to be made. He has no input. Mm. So they go ahead. And one decision they make is, we've got to get this film out. Phil's finished the record. We're good to go. Um, and uh, Paul's yeah, album can move. Can't, has to move. Yeah, so Paul has his heart set on this date of April the 10th and then Apple kind of think, actually, we could try and get Let It Be out on uh, April the 24th and we could push Paul's album uh, back into June on the 4th of June. And I think yeah. their logic is we'll get the Beatles album out and then Paul's album will come out and one thing will feed the other. You know, we shouldn't have, you know, something cannibalizing a Beatles product. Yeah. And uh, this is where the famous... Um, Ringo delivering a letter event happens, which is the 31st of March. Yes. Um, so George yeah. and John handwrite, handwrite, you know, they're being very nice about it. Uh, they write a nice letter to Paul, address it from us to you, see what they did there. And nice, uh, saying, you know, we've, we've decided to, and we've already instructed EMI uh, to postpone your album to the 4th of June. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh, you know, I, I mean, the other thing, uh, you know, as you were saying about the marketplace, Klein has already in America pushed out you know, at the end of February the Hey Jude compilation. Yes. So the market is swimming in. Ringo in has put product. out Sentimental Journey in March. Yeah. So you've got Sentimental Journey. You've got Let It Be. You've got Hey Jude. You've got Instant Karma. You, you know, it's a it's a boom time mm. uh, for 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 product. Um, so, yeah, so uh, Paul will say in interviews, oh, the other two sent Ringo because he's the nice guy. Ringo's take is he knew what was in the letter and he thought, I don't want to send some office, office boy, boy round with this. I'll go round because, hey, you know, me and Paul, I'm the nice guy. So now, th th this all happens uh, on the 31st of March. And it's interesting to note that Ringo was on the radio uh, earlier in the day uh, yeah. on BBC Radio 2, giving an, an interview with Open House Show with Pete Murray, promoting Sentimental Journey. It was a live uh, broadcast, and he's talking about the solo projects, saying once this is all done, you know, we'll come back together again once we all have some free time. I've been working with George, I'm visiting with... So he is, he is again, either in a very kind of disingenuous way, pushing this line mm. to the public that everything's fine, the Beatles are still together. I, I don't actually think Ringo is the type to 
do that. You know, I think Ringo was genuinely just saying, yeah, we're all doing different things, but we're all going to come back together at some point. We'll, we'll do something. Yeah. Um, everybody's, you know, I'm speaking to everybody. Everybody's, you know, everything's fine. Um, and then poor man he trots around to see Paul yeah and he says uh, you know Ringo recounts the following year uh, in court exactly what happens and he said uh, this is Ringo speaking here I went to see Paul to my dismay he went completely out of control shouting at me prodding his fingers towards my face saying I'll finish you now and you'll pay he told me to put on my coat and get out I did so can you um, can you hear the lawyer writing that? <laughs> you think, are you saying that uh, somebody tampered with this witness, Stephen? I I, I, I think that there's I can see the hand of my learned friends in in the drafting of that affidavit. He told me to get out. I did so. I mean, it, it's I was. Dis- Have you ever said to my dismay in real life? <laughs> Well, I can't imagine Ringo saying, to my dismay, you know, he no. got the vapors and he needed to yeah, sit down. Yeah, this is, this is very <laughs> legalistic, but I think, I think the gist is there. Yeah, but it's this notion of, yeah, we want to put your release back for the good of the group and all this sort of shit, says Paul. And he was giving me the party line and I did something I'd never done before. I told him to get out, to assert myself because I was just sinking. And Linda was helpful. She said to me, you don't have to take this crap. You have every bit as much right to do what you want, blah, 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 blah. And um, so it, it just he just snapped. So this is where I think the depression kicks in. Yeah. The kind of suddenly the despondency takes hold, the anger as yeah. well, that this is where it really starts. That he might have been, when he was in Scotland, he might have been uh, sort of confused or he might have been upset or he might have been down. But I think this is kind of the point at which his world falls apart, that he knows this is three against one and they're kind of, you know, he's previously had a personal assurance from George. Yeah. Your album release schedule is fine. And now, you know. Well, I think, and I think this is the line where Schrodinger's Beatles is dead. Yeah. So, you know, we've had this uh, John wanting a divorce on the 20th of September. You know, there were avenues and opportunities where a good manager could have stepped in and maybe made something happen or maybe got a future promise of something to happen. But it's at this point, not only do things kind of seem irretrievable or pass a point of, of no return, but it also on that day, the 31st of March, it does set up, as you say, this three against one dynamic. Yeah. And that's hugely detrimental to Paul for the next two or three years that he is set aside. And, you know, we'll talk about the press release in a second, but it's this three against one that more so makes him the man who split up the Beatles because it leads to the three against one court case. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you could you can argue and Paul does argue that the three against one thing actually originates the year before whenever they signed for Klein, they signed for Klein and Trident Studios and they're and he talks about, oh, that's the kind of crack in the Liberty Bell when, you know, they but I don't I don't really think that can be the case. You know, they 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 were kind of still recording all through 1969. Mm. The Eastmans are representing Paul in in, in a certain capacity. Um, it, you know, part of this is the inability of the Eastmans and Klein to get along yeah. um, because they're both maneuvering for position. Um, but this is the point, I think, at, because this is, this is intruding into Paul's artistic life. Yes. 
this is not northern songs this is not names this is not disputes about who will be the manager this is it's absolutely cutting across Paul's artistic creativity. Well, it's his frustration creativity. that he can't even be Paul McCartney. Exactly. You know, that he doesn't even have that. Uh, that That's where the frustration comes yeah. from. And I think this is probably the first time that they've fallen out about music. They've fallen out about something that impacts directly on his creativity. And I think that's the sudden... So it seems to be in the window after this that the press release Q&A gets put together, that it's off the back of this kind of vibe that he writes the answers. So the, the yeah. story is that the album comes out on the 10th of April with a, a press release, um, which mainly consists of Paul breaking down the individual songs, but also answering four pages of Q&As. And the Qs have been written by Peter Brown yeah. uh, from Apple um, because Paul didn't want to go on a big promotional jaunt, so he says. Yeah, and so, I think uh, I, you know, this is this is you know, I've been. T- I, I, I hope you notice I've been saying very nice things about Paul all the way through. But this is the point at which I think Paul starts. Uh, you know, he's dodged the issue about this Q and A for years. Mm. So he sort of goes, "Oh well, I didn't want to do promotions." So Peter Brown put together some questions, and I just answered the questions. Yeah, you know. There's an interview that I turned up uh, from 1982 where it's the Canadian Musical Express and he says, oh, it was Peter Brown uh, who wrote those questions, not me. But the way it came out, it looked as if it was specially engineered by me. And I'm thinking that's completely disingenuous. You know, Mm. Peter Brown came up with some questions and you didn't want to answer them. Mm. You're Paul McCartney. You just you just put a pen through those questions and you don't answer them. Yeah. If if you don't want to answer the question about did you miss Ringo, but it's the worst side of his personality. It's, it's just it's this thing yeah. of well, if you don't ask me if I take drugs, you're promoting it. I'm yeah. just telling the truth, man. You're like, uh, I mean, yeah. I think he's a bit wiser about these things these days, but. You know, yeah. These are he did not have to answer these questions, no. and it's completely disingenuous to say, "Well, I just answered them." You know, and they do you taste pres- the album forever? It's certainly for the first year or two that it comes out. You know, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's there. It's it's online. You can go and get it. I think is it in the is it the whole thing produced in the the box? whole thing is in the box set. Well, there's four main questions where he says, "Are you planning a new album or single with the Beatles?" No. Q, is this album a rest away from the Beatles or the start of a solo career? A, time will tell. Okay. Being a solo album means it's the start of a solo career and not being done with the Beatles means it's just a rest. So it's both. Q, is your break with the Beatles temporary or permanent due to personal differences or musical ones? A, personal differences, business differences, musical differences, but most of all, because I have a better time with my family. Temporary or permanent, I don't really know. And then the big one was, do you see or foresee, do you foresee a time when the Lennon-McCartney becomes an active songwriting partnership again? He says, no. no yeah. So there's some light there where he says time will tell or I don't really know if it's temporary or permanent, you could argue. But the damage is done because this is where the Beatles split stories hit the, the damage. The, yeah, the damage, is, the damage is done. And it's the Lennon and McCartney question yeah. is really, you know, he at no point does he actually say, I am leaving the Beatles, the Beatles are finished. Hmm. He's less definitive here, arguably, than he was in that interview in, in Life magazine where he says the Beatle thing is over. Yeah. But what he does do is he, he clearly realizes he knows full well what it's not real. I mean, he knows the effect mm. that this is going to have. Mm. So he rings John the, the night before this 
hits the streets. Uh, John is in London with with um, Arthur Janoff, Janoff doing his primal there. So he rings him and lets him know what's happening and says, you know, it's out there. It's it's I'm I'm letting everybody know that it's it's yeah. over. And yeah, so he did know the power of it, and that's the overlap with our Plastic Ono band episode, folks. If you want to go and listen to that, yeah. but Paul. Uh, Paul does have an idea that this is going to happen and it provokes a classic kind of Derek Taylor response because, you know, the the, the newspapers all lead with the uh, the story that Paul quits the Beatles. That's the famous yeah. headline that we still see today. And then they kind of go into damage management mode, I guess. It is. And I mean, it, it does kind of pick up from some of that ambiguity in the Q&A sheet that McCartney's done. So Derek Taylor says, you know, uh, Mavis Smith, uh, who is Derek's uh, assistant, is kind of, I think she actually reads this from the doorstep. She's kind of forced out onto mm. the doorstep, <laughs> comes in, you know, expecting to have a nice day at work. And right, go out and read this. And she's saying, this is the split. This is not true. Although it is true, there are no plans at the moment for more Beatles recordings. This is quite normal. Next month, their new LP will be issued. It has already been recorded. Uh, no plans for more recordings. I hope the Beatles will get together for another recording session after the summer. Yeah. And, um, uh, but Derek's statement is, you know, probably one of the more famous statements that he put out, really. Yeah. Um, can I read it? Spring is here. Yes. So Derek Taylor puts out this statement on April the 10th, 1970. Spring is here and Leeds play Chelsea tomorrow. And Ringo and John and George and Paul are alive and well and full of hope. The world is still spinning and so are we and so are you. When the spinning stops, that'll be the time to worry, not before. Until then, the Beatles are alive and well and the beat goes on, the beat goes on. And... You know, he's not wrong, you know. He's the, <laughs> master. He's, he, he's the master of uh, putting out a press statement that sounds wonderfully poetic, but actually says nothing. Yeah, yeah. So so the album comes out into that world. So what we sometimes forget about is that the album is a huge success. It goes to number one in America in May. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's this notion that it gets very bad reviews, but... It doesn't really. There's a preview interview in Rolling Stone before Jan Wenner has heard the album that's reproduced in the McCartney Archive collection. Yeah. And then the initial Rolling Stone review is actually reasonably good. It kind of picks picks apart problems with the press release, which I think they are right to say. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's the problem. The press release sort of uh, just overshadows everything. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they do talk about the fact that people thought or hoped that Paul's album would be a leap beyond the Beatles, a super mind-blowing extravaganza with songs that would make Hey Jude and Let It Be seem pale by comparison. Mm. So uh, th th there's that aspect to the review and saying, but it's almost kind of just, done, well, it isn't that. It isn't, it isn't another Abbey Road. Yeah. You know, it isn't another, you never give me your, your money. It's, it's not that kind of thing. The simplicity is the keynote. Yeah. Um, well, the original um, Rolling Stone review, which is on the 14th of May, 1970, so a month after the album is out and when it's kind of heading towards the top of the charts anyway, so it's a bit late in the day. But it does say, you know, the 14 cuts on McCartney are masterful examples of happiness, relaxation and contentment, which is a fair enough thing to say. Yeah. But then it also says, unfortunately, there's more to this album than just music. And it basically says the press release sours everything. And, yeah. you know, it's one thing for people to try and absorb what a, a solo McCartney album would be like, that it would be lo-fi or, you know, it wouldn't be the super duper extravaganza without him 
trying to say, yeah, and you're not getting any Beatles either, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, th th this is the, as you say, by the time this Rolling Stone review comes out, um, it's already been certified gold in the States. You know, it's selling. It, it's, 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 no, you know, Sentimental Journey sold. Hmm. But it wasn't so a number one. and It wasn't a number one, but there is a certain kind of, uh, you know, the Beatle brand is going to sell. But yeah. um, it, it does less, it fares less well um, in the UK. And there, it, it's, the, the, the reviews there are sort of all focused on this kind of slightly homemade quality to it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that, it just it suffers by comparison with Abbey Road. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there might be an argument to say if it had come out after Let It Be yeah. and was being compared with Let It Be, which is a much rougher, rawer, um, less produced album. Yeah, there would have been prepped it, that, for that, it better. Yes, that, that, that we would have been prepped for it. The other argument is to say, and this I think is, is the way I look at this album is this is not really Paul McCartney's commercial debut solo album. I think this is an album that he was not sure that he was making. Mm. He was putting together little tracks, little demos. Um, I think if Instant Karma hadn't kind of happened, yeah. you probably wouldn't have got Maybe I'm Amazed on there. Every Night might not have ended up on there. Yeah. And it would have come out with Karina Crore with with uh, lovely Linda with hottest sun yeah. glasses <laughs> suicide and it would have been compared with uh, electronic sound. Yeah, let, let's play. I mean, it's you know you, you can get lost in the in the in the weeds of you know the what ifs or the counterfactuals, but let's just play a little bit of McCartney album counterfactuals. So version one of you know it comes out. Uh, as you say, kind of a low-key experimental issue without Every Night and without um, Maybe I'm Amazed, you know, like a Zapple yeah. release. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, people don't think any of the wiser of it. And then, you know, maybe the alternate is Paul releases one or two standalone singles in 70 instead. You know, Maybe I'm Amazed could be a standalone single. Um, and, you know, the debut album is either Ram or some version of Ram with Maybe I'm Amazed on it at the end of 1970 yeah. or, you know, the first half of 71. So that's one possible outcome i mean it is odd that you know people had the, the the pump had been primed for a lennon solo album from his solo singles nobody had any it was so secretive and so quick and so fast nobody had any idea what the solo mccartney was going to sound like no so you know he could have played it differently without the press release an experimental album a few standalone singles and then a ram type album probably yeah. would have been a totally different I think so. I think so. So the things that the, the things that color this are the press release. So suddenly it becomes this is coupled with Paul's announcement that the Beatles are finished and he has quit the Beatles, regardless yeah. of whether or not that's what the press release actually said. That's what the media yeah. says it said. So whatever the media says, that goes. And suddenly the headline is out there and you get a sense that this is the point at which they completely lose control of the story. Yeah. So up to this point, as recently as the 31st of March, Ringo has been on the radio saying, oh, we're all doing fine and, and everything's great. Um, they lose control of the story. So if this album had not been linked with the breakup of the Beatles, mm. I think it would be a completely different uh, um, seen in a, a completely different way. Yeah. Um, 
if he hadn't put those songs on, let's say Junk Every Night, Maybe I'm Amazed, it would just be a little album of experimental things, the sort of thing that he'd been threatening to put out since 1966. You know, Paul McCartney goes too far. Yeah. The other thing is he called it McCartney. Yeah. Now, let's talk about this for a sec, because this is interesting. Um there was a thing, I think, in, in, in Pitchfork that you pulled out yeah. from a from the reissue review that says the album's not called Paul McCartney. It's called yeah. McCartney. Yeah. And the point that they make is that people are used to seeing, you know, when the, when the media talk about him, it's always Paul. Yeah. You know, the Beatles all went by their first name. But when you, you see McCartney, it's usually Lennon slash McCartney. Mm. So that there is an element of divorcing the name McCartney from the name Lennon. Yeah. This is a kind of statement. The very title itself is a kind of statement, you know, uh, of independence from that songwriting partnership. And it seems to me that it's that question in the Q&A, do you see that Lennon-McCartney? So that's the killer question. Mm-hmm. And that ties into the use of, of, of the name. Um, and I think also it, it, it's, as you say, it sold well. Yeah, you know the public liked it. It was gold. It was a hit record. Yeah. Both sides of the Atlantic. Um, it then starts to get its bad reputation. It seems to me in the months and immediate years that follow. Well, there's a couple of things going on. I mean, you're right. It sells well. It's it's number one in America for three weeks at the end of May. It's replaced at number one by the Let It Be album. And just for comparison to realise how quick the Beatles worked, Abbey Road had only stopped being number one at the end of January. So it's yeah. ridiculously fast. Um, but it gets drowned out by the fact that, you know, you know, at the end of 1970, Paul issues the court proceedings against the other, and it's the three against one uh, setup that kind of goes on between 1970 and 72 that really damages yeah. Paul. So people just assume that the albums get damaged with that. Yeah. And the other thing that you can't ignore is what comes after from John and what comes after from George. So, But you could argue that what comes from John and George is what's expected of them. Exactly, exactly. I mean, what they produce as their first post-split, mm. first solo album. So regardless of the fact that, you know, George already has two albums out, John has four albums out by this mm. stage, his debut album is Plastic Ono Band and George's debut album is All Things Must Pass. Yeah. So McCartney is immediately being compared retrospectively with Plastic Ono Band and All Things Must Pass, which are arguably, you know, the the two best, I mean, all things must pass, obviously the best <laughs> ever Beatles solo album. But, you know, these are these are big albums. Yeah. And they're both produced by Phil Spector. George's album in particular sounds nothing like the Beatles. You know, yeah. he's completely stepped away. So retrospectively, you're thinking, well, what is the big artistic statement from each of the songwriting Beatles post-split? Yeah. All things must pass, Plastic on a Band. McCartney, which is sort of filled with these little doodles. I don't think it was ever intended to be the big solo statement, the big declaration of independence. He sort of stumbles into that. And then you've got layered on top of that, the depression, the stories of the drinking, and the, the song that the focus is there is every night because of those two lines every night. I just want to go out, get out of my head. Mm. Um, whereas that's a song 
those lines predate mm. that. McCartney says he had a, he had a ball recording this album. Um, Every night is is finished when he's on holiday with Linda. It seems to me that that song's probably more about his split from Jane, mm. about his personal life, about you know he he's a man about town. He's broken up uh, with his fiance. That's those are the origins of that song, I think. Um, so it it retrospectively has this uh, sort of interpretation foisted mm. upon it. There's nothing depressing in this album. Yeah. Man, We Was Lonely is the only song that I think is is kind of autobiographical from that period. Well, let's finish up by maybe just talking about the album's afterlife, because I think it does have a good afterlife, because now we're 50 years on, and I think yeah. it's quite a well-regarded album. And one of the mantras that we say on this show is that Paul McCartney's career is better in retrospect, you know, because you can kind of see it all, and it's not tethered to any particular, you know, you know that Living Let yeah. Die is coming and all the rest, you know, so it doesn't matter yeah. that this album is a little bit slight. You know he, come, you know he comes good you know commercially. He comes good. Yeah. But, I, I, but I've also kind of believed that, you know, if the four Beatles had... Uh, uh, not been Beatles. If these were individual solo careers being judged on their own merits, yeah. Paul's solo career actually has a proper incline. You know, you, you compare it to someone like Elton John, you know, there's a couple of albums where they're yeah. finding their feet and then he gets there. Whereas, you know, the other, you know, John and George in particular hit big pretty early and then yeah. maybe don't hit those heights again. So I think Paul's, the arc of Paul's solo career matches a sensible standard solo career. Um, but I think in retrospect, you know, lots of people love McCartney. It's got a fantastic sound. It's got a fantastic vibe. Uh, and that's really what he was trying to capture in the first place. I, th- I, I Yeah. I, I, well, uh, you know, you asked me at the beginning that I like this album. I love this album. Mm. Um, you know, I don't love Teddy Boy. I don't live, love Queen of Crore. Yeah. But, you know, as a whole, as a piece, I do love this album, but I can fully understand um, that if you're looking at this in 1970, in the midst of the album Hey Jude dropping, Let It Be, Instant Karma, Plastic Ono Band, All Things Must Pass, this does not stack up well yeah. at the time. But but as you say, looking back, I think that you, you know that's absolutely right. McCartney's career you need to be looking at the whole thing mm-hmm. um, uh, and you can go back and uh, secure in the knowledge that he comes good in the end and he, <laughs> he, he starts outperforming the rest of them. You know, um, he, he, he's in it for the long haul. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, absolutely. I love this album. Um, I, I have to do admit, without, yeah, I when do I without the last heard, track. But yeah. yeah. When I first heard it, I didn't like it. And I kind of came to it pretty early on. I'd, uh, I'd gotten through the Beatles and uh, it was... 1989 it was after Flowers in the Dirt had come out and I thought well I better buy Paul's solo oh, right. yeah. and I started with this and I, I could not get my head around McCartney at all at the time because it's you know so I can understand the disappointment that people would have had in 1970 because I had a disappointment when I first heard it and it was to be honest it was probably a few years later when Unplugged happened that I was like oh these are good songs I should go yeah. back and listen to it again and actually that kind of released uh, it for me a little bit you know yeah I, I was kind of a little bit the same i think you know i'm i'm as we keep saying you know i'm so much older than you but um it was uh <laughs> so. it, it was 1978 i think i think i probably bought it having bought london town okay which is a great album well um, that's a discussion and um <laughs> but uh and yeah i find it difficult and um, the thing i the thing i find difficult apart from the hottest sunglasses um <laughs> i i just i the 
I'm 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 a bit of a lyrics man, so all those okay. instrumentals just seem to run into one, and I find well, which is which? Uh, you know, what's Valentine Day? What's OU? What my, uh, that? I find that I find the instrumental percentage too high <laughs> fair enough um yeah but overall it's a, it's a winner of an album and and um unfortunately i think we've run out of time to discuss womankind which is just too bad oh that's uh, yeah that's just <laughs> atrocious can we just say there are a couple of demos on the box set womankind i have no idea why he thought that was a suitable I'm not even gonna. I I, I was oh, again. I was awful. listening to that in the car today, and I thought, sorry, what is that lyric? Yeah. What? 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 <laughs> uh, I, I, it's just. But you know, we don't need to hear everything, Paul. No, no, Womankind is a terrible bonus track. Tucked in right at the end of the archive edition. But thankfully, uh, we have had, uh, just come out a few weeks ago for Record Store Day, a fantastic 50th anniversary half-speed vinyl pressing of McCartney, which is a very nice way to enjoy it. Yeah. And I think to celebrate its 50th birthday, if uh, if, if anyone can find a, a copy of, uh, of that, or even just a happy old... Um, happy old beat up mono. Is there old, a mono version? I don't think there I is a mono know. version. There's no, there's a mono, a mono ram, but there's not. I, don't a mono. Um, I think it's uh, it's it's an album. It it does. It's it's very it's very sweet. It's very obvious. Every its time. every home should have one. Every home should have its uh, bowl of cherries. Um, so look, that's the McCartney album, fifty years old uh, this year. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, we're available in all the usual places: Twitter at Beatles Pod, the Facebook group, all sorts of various internet things. Wherever you get your down loads uh, a nice review is always appreciated and um, yeah tell us what you think about McCartney it gets better with time like all all, all the best things um, but for Nothing Is Real my name's Jason Carty my name's Stephen Cockroft and uh, thanks for listening we'll see you next time Nothing Is Real is powered by Acast Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.